Well, take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 8. Revelation 8, as we continue to make our way through this book. I don't know about you, but it's been incredible to see how encouraging this book, which is so cryptic and foreign to a lot of people, is is to the church. It's just been a blessing, and I hope as we continue to walk through it, it becomes even more of a blessing to you as well. Revelation chapter 8. We are covering the last seal judgment, so it's only the first five verses this afternoon. So Revelation 8, verses 1 through 5. Let's hear now the word of the Lord together. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for your word. Thanks for the truth you reveal to us in it. And also thanks for just the glimpses of your glory that we get. We are so thankful that your Son has come and done everything that we have failed to do. Jesus, our perfect substitute and our perfect example. May we have soft hearts, Lord, as we read your word. Pray that your Spirit would help us to understand, would give us ears to hear what you are saying to the churches. I pray that we would not just be hearers only, but doers of your word. Clinging to Jesus, we might live in faith in obedience, and to glorify your great name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, for some reason, over the last few years, I have had a kind of a growing obsession with World War II. I'm not really sure why. Maybe in some way it's my age or something, but I remember teasing my dad when he was my age about his obsession with the History Channel and all these war things, but it's, it's just been fascinating to me. Any book, any TV show, any, anything that's related to World War II is just incredible. You know, I, I love the battles. I love learning about the leaders and all the decisions. I even love just details about these heroic acts. But what has caught my attention most recently is how the war affected the homeland. Now, you probably already remember this stuff from school. Apparently, I was asleep in class when this was taught, but it's just incredible how our whole country changed overnight in World War II. I mean, once we entered the war, everything changed to the point of factories that were making cars and appliances started making tanks and planes and ammunition. Stay-at-home moms went to work, some of them for the first time in these factories, making parts for the war. Some of them rationed food to help people. I mean, it's incredible. You can even see Hollywood kicked in. Disney, they made ads to sell war bonds so they can raise money for the war. 
It's just incredible to me to think how everybody chipped in. I don't think we've seen anything even close to that in my lifetime. The closest maybe is 9-11. Some of you that were around when that happened and people started to jump in and help out. But nothing like that. Everybody had a part to play. Now, I hear these stories and I'm humbled at the sacrifice. I'm thankful for what they sacrificed and the freedom that they kind of bought for us. I'm also in some ways a little scared thinking of what would happen in our generation if another war broke out. I don't know if we'd handle things the same way. I think most of all, as I read these stories, and this is really why I like them, most of all, it inspires me. I feel like I want to make a difference in history like they did. I hope that I would be the one making sacrifices, making the heroic decision, laying down my life to fight evil and injustice and make a difference in this world. Now, if you take that sentiment to the Christian life and turn it up a whole notch. I hope as we've been reading and studying Revelation, you've felt some of that same inspiration already. Just think about it. We've, we've learned about incredible things. The Lamb of God taking the scroll from the Ancient of Days, His Father. Taking the seals off the scroll and giving judgment to the world and redeeming His people through it. We learned of the sealing of the church Sealing so that they would persevere to the end. So they would be the ones left standing with the great multitude praising God for all of eternity. I hope in all of that you're amazed and you're encouraged, but I hope there's at least a little part of you that looks at this incredible plan thinking to yourself, where do I fit in? What do I do? What part can I play? How can God use me even now in Bakersfield? As a businessman, or a stay-at-home mom, or a student, or a public servant, how can God use me in this incredible plan? Do I have a part to play? Or am I just kind of along for the ride? Just take this book, and it's just detailing the end of history, and I just kind of watch it unfold all around me. What part can we play in this glorious plan of redemption through judgment? And that's the question that really Revelation 8 answers for us. In these first five verses, this last seal judgment, the seventh seal, we see the indispensable part that the church can play, that we can play even today as God works out his perfect plan. And I want to break these verses down into two parts. The first is the setup to that judgment, and that's the stunning silence. The stunning silence, really verse 1 and a little in verse 2. And then second is the answered prayer. Answered prayer in verses 3 through 5. So silence and prayer. Stunning silence and answered prayer. So let's look at verse 1 again together as we see the stunning silence. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Now really the first reason why this silence is so stunning is because it's so unexpected, isn't it? I don't know about you, but when you read that in light of what we've already learned, it's almost kind of anticlimactic, isn't it? I mean, think of the first seals, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, bringing oppression and disease and famine and death, these crazy judgments on the world. And then the fifth seal, you see the martyrs cry out, from under the altar and crying out for God to give justice to them, for God to come and establish justice 
and avenge the blood that was shed. Then the sixth seal, I mean, come on. You have the earthquake, and you have the sun going dark. You have stars falling from the sky. And I don't know about you, but when I read the sixth seal, I thought, that's it. That's the end. How is there a seal past the sixth seal? How is the seventh seal going to be? If we're building to the seventh seal, it's going to be incredible. And then you get to the seventh seal, and what do you see? Silence. Does that seem right to you? Seems a little strange, doesn't it? Seems like that has to be wrong. And what's even more stunning that we don't realize is where the silence is. Did you notice that in verse 1? There was silence where? In heaven. I hope you've been paying attention, but what's the scene been like in heaven so far? In chapter 4, you have the four living creatures praising God night and day, unceasing prayer to the one that's on the throne. And then in chapter 5, what do you have? You have the whole creation singing this song of redemption, the new song to the Lamb that was slain. All creation joins in to this massive chorus. The whole world is singing. And then you have six and seven, these dramas of judgment and redemption, this incredible scene. And you get to seven in silence. Hope you can see that heaven so far is this loud and busy place. And then no more visions, no more drama. The unceasing praise around the throne actually stops. And it's filled with nothing, it seems. Now, I know that some of us probably think, well, that's a bit strange. There's got to be something else there, right? I think of this in terms of parenting in some ways. When kids are playing and there's constant noise, when silence happens, what's your first worry as a parent? Something's wrong. Something's not right. This shouldn't be silent. That's a bit of what we get here. This, something's wrong. And actually, there's a lot of people that get uncomfortable with this. They say, you know what? The seventh seal can't just be silence. We have to fill it with something. And what they do is they take this and they fill it with the next judgments. They fill it with the trumpet judgments. And so this just becomes an empty seal and we just move right along. And they kind of get that from verse 2. Look at verse 2. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. So yes, of course, they're handing out the trumpets for the next judgment, and that is a little preview of what's to come, but the seventh seal isn't just a transition to the next thing. Some say it's like those Russian nesting dolls. The seventh seal actually contains the trumpets, and what we have then is like this one big chain of events, this one big timeline. And I need to tell you a couple reasons why that's not true. Well, first of all, this is the seventh seal, not the first trumpet judgment. The idea of seven is this idea of completion. And the biggest reason, when we get to verse 5, the language there is of kind of the end judgment that we've already seen in chapter 6. And so the way to understand this seal is not pointing forward, but pointing back. Pointing back to the seal judgments and the completion of what we call these cycles. I know we've talked about these cycles a few times, and I want to come back to that again. There's not just this giant timeline in Revelation. There's seven cycles. And these cycles don't need to run end to end. They run really parallel to each other. So you see these cycles end with the seal judgments, then the trumpet judgments, then the bowl judgments. There's actually seven sevens in this book. 
And they're meant to give us a picture of God's perfect plan from different angles. Jason's mentioned this a few weeks back. It's like holding a diamond up to the light and looking at it from different angles to appreciate its beauty. So this is holding out God's plan and saying, oh, look, there's the perspective of the seal judgments. There's the perspective from the trumpets. There's the perspective from the bowl judgments. And so we get this plan displayed in glorious uh, drama before us each and every cycle. You need to keep that in your memory as we go through this. And this is just the end of that first cycle. So what is it then? If the silence isn't just, hey, get on with it, it's not the first trumpet, what is the silence? Well, you know how we've dealt with these images already in the book of Revelation. We go back to the Old Testament. And the Old Testament actually has a lot to say about silence. The first thing I want to draw your attention to is actually silence in the Old Testament is an anticipation of judgment. It's kind of a prelude to terrifying judgment to come. You don't have to turn there. Let me read a few passages to you. Habakkuk chapter 2, actually the last verse, verse 20 in Habakkuk 2 says, The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. And in the very next chapter, what do we have? Judgment. And even in Habakkuk 4 and on, we have judgment that follows this silence. Zechariah chapter 2, verse 13. Be silent all flesh before the Lord. Why? For he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. And what's the picture there? Why is he getting up figuratively from his throne? He's getting up to judge the world. To lay down justice. Long-awaited justice. Perhaps the biggest and clearest picture is in Zephaniah chapter 1, the whole chapter. But let me read just a couple verses. Zephaniah 1, 7. Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 7 says this. Be silent before the Lord God. There's the silence. For the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. The great day of the Lord is near. And what's that? And it's hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish. A day of ruin and devastation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. I hope that sounds familiar. That's the sixth seal, isn't it? Calling on rocks to fall on us because we don't want to face the wrath of the Lamb. Darkness and gloom. And so this silence is what sets up that final judgment. Really, in some ways, the best way to think about it is kind of the calm before the storm. You guys know what I'm talking about with that? We have that figurative language, but maybe you've even experienced it. If you've ever been camping, been out in the woods, and you have this kind of constant noise with the trees moving and the birds chirping and the animals moving. If you've ever been in the woods when it goes dead silent... It's kind of scary, isn't it? When a predator shows up, maybe you're that predator, or maybe you hear thunder in the distance. You see lightning and a storm comes upon you. Well, the silence in the Old Testament is the calm before the storm of judgment. And that's what we have in the seventh seal, this coming judgment, which is why John says in the end of verse 1, look there, it says, it will last how long? Half an hour. Now, there's no reason to take this literally that the whole world just goes on pause 
for 30 minutes at the end of time. That's not the language here. The term hour of judgment in Revelation appears nine times, and it's talking about the day of judgment, the time of judgment, right? This is the hour that we've all been waiting for. So the picture here, the language here is saying that this hour of judgment will come on you suddenly. It's not an hour, it's cut off. It's shortened. It'll come unexpectedly and suddenly on this world. The last day of judgment will come quickly. That's a warning to the wicked, isn't it? To those of us that might play around with sin, play games with God, the warning here is you better repent. Repent quickly. Trust in the slain Passover lamb before the plague comes on you quickly. But it's also an incredible encouragement to the church that's suffering. Judgment is coming. I know it feels like God is silent. I know this half hour probably feels like forever when you're waiting on it, figuratively. But it's cut off because your Lord will come and set things right. Your Lord will bring the judgment you so desperately want. And so silence is this this prelude, this anticipation of judgment. But that's not all it is in the Old Testament. There's one more thing I want to talk to you about. It is that anticipation, but silence in the Old Testament is silent reverence. Silence because of awe of God, who he is, and what he's done. Think of Job. Remember Job? Righteous man, suffered greatly. Suffered greatly and his friends gave him horrible advice. Well, it's because of your sin, Job. Your sin has led to this persecution. Your sin has led to this suffering. God's in the wrong. And Job fought back well for a while, but he began to lose faith. He begins to become prideful. He says, if I could only speak with God, I would interrogate God. I would interrogate him and challenge his justice. And what happens at the end of the book of Job? God shows up to interrogate Job. He says in Job 38, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Not the way you want to start a conversation with God. Then what does God do? He says, Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Where were you when I spoke light into this world? Do you know where the light is being stored? Do you know where the darkness is being stored? Surely, Job, you know. And what's Job's response? Chapter 40, verse 5 says, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice. But I will proceed no further. That's the right response when you're faced with God's glory. It's silent reverence. You know, we even get a taste of this in nature too, don't we? You know, we escape Bakersfield every summer to go somewhere, pretty much. Escape the heat. We go to the beach, or maybe you go to the Grand Canyon, or you go to Yosemite. You see these glorious waterfalls, right? When you see these wonderful works of creation, what do you do? It doesn't suddenly make you chatty, right? You're not like, oh, it's so big. No. What do people do at these places? They sit and they look in awe. We have language for it, don't we? It takes our breath away. It leaves us speechless. And that's the work of God's fingers in creation. Imagine what the work of God in judgment is 
as he comes in glory to reveal his judgment and salvation in the world. How much more will we be stunned into silence and awe before him? Beale says the main point of this silence is the horror of divine judgment, which has such an awesome effect that no human is able to verbalize a response. That's the result of divine judgment. I love what Lloyd-Jones says. This is one of my favorite quotes from Lloyd-Jones. If you asked Lloyd-Jones what a Christian is, how would you define a Christian? Here's what he would say. A Christian is someone whose mouth has been shut. Look, if you study God, if you contemplate God, and it never leads you to this moment, to this kind of silent reverence, you need to repent. You need to repent because you may have a false God. Or you may be elevating yourself to the same level as God, but either way, you need to repent. Because the right response when you're faced with the glory of God and salvation and judgment is not to run your mouth like people in our world. It's not to question God or to contemplate God as merely just an academic exercise. When we see God in his glory, the right result should be to fall on our knees in silent reverence and repentance. So that's the silence we're talking about here, the silent anticipation and awe. But believe it or not, that's just the prelude to the judgment, to the seventh seal. What's in the seventh seal? And what part do we play? Well, that's what verse 3 talks about. So let's look at the answered prayers in verse 3. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Now this scene might appear a little strange and foreign to us, but it certainly would not be foreign to John or to his readers, because this scene is what happens in the tabernacle, isn't it? It what happens in the temple. The priest would go into the holy place at the altar of incense, and this is what he would do. Now, if you remember, there were kind of like three regions or three places related to the tabernacle. You had the outer courts, and you had an altar in the outer courts. But that altar was the sacrifice altar, the bronze altar, where they slayed the sacrifice, and the blood would be spilt. But then the priest would take a censer, this bowl or kind of like a shovel, he would take the coals from that outside altar and bring it inside the holy place. Not the holy of holies, but the holy place. And there was a small little altar there, probably not much bigger than this pulpit. And they would mix there the incense and these coals and the smoke would rise. And it was a picture of the prayers of the saints ascending to heaven, seen as this pleasing aroma to the Lord. What's incredible is the priest would do this every morning and every evening, following the morning and evening worship. And they would do this so there's a constant stream of smoke picturing that God is always hearing and answering the prayers of his people. David picks this idea up in Psalm 141. He says, O Lord, I call upon you. Hasten to me. Give ear to my voice when I call you. And listen, let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. 
So that's the picture here, the prayers of the saints going up before God to go to his heavenly throne room. And the incredible part is this is a fulfillment of all that we've seen in the seals so far. If you remember in Revelation 5, when the elders were around the throne and the four living creatures were around the throne, they were holding something, weren't they? They were holding a censer full of the prayers of the saints. And then what do we see in the fifth seal judgment, chapter 6? The altar where the saints, the martyrs, are crying out. That's the altar of incense. That's the altar that we see in chapter 8 here. And so what we have is little glimpses of the prayers coming to God, but we never get the answer. Here's the answer. Chapter 8 is the answer to their prayers. It's not just, by the way, the answer to the martyrs' prayers. Did you notice the middle of of verse 3 there? The angel was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all, all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. You see what's happening here? This seventh seal is a drama unfolding for the benefit of the entire church. Yes, the silence was in awe of God. The silence was an anticipation of God's judgment. But the silence is also God stilling heaven to hear the prayers of his saints and to give them an answer. And here's the answer, verse 5. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it on the earth. Now that's the picture of the final judgment. It's a very brief and concise picture that we see over and over again. Fire thrown at the earth, and... There were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and even an earthquake. I hope you recognize that language. We've seen that in Revelation as well, haven't we? Chapter 4, when God is on his throne, what do we see happening all around him? We see thunder and lightning and earthquakes. It's kind of divine fireworks that accompany God. And the sixth seal, as final judgment comes on the earth, what do we see? Lightning and thunder and earthquakes, we see it all again because it's God showing up. This is what's called theophany language. Theophany is just the appearance of God. Your minds hopefully go back to Sinai. You remember when God descended on the mountain? What happened? The mountain shook. Thunder and lightning. This incredible display of God's glory as he descended on the mountain before the people and God would judge anyone that got close to the mountain. So this is a continuation of the sixth seal, a picture of final judgment. And by the way, we see this description every single cycle about this plan of God. At the end of the trumpet judgments in chapter 10, we see thunder and lightning and earthquakes. At the end of the bowl judgments in chapter 16, we see thunder and lightning and earthquakes. Oh, you see what an incredible picture of the end of the world this is the seventh seal do you see what a glorious encouragement it is yes god will come in judgment god will come to set things right but god will do it to answer the prayers of his people god brings the end of the world because of the saints prayers he finishes his perfect plan of redemption and judgment as a result of you and I praying. Does that sound crazy to you? That sounds almost blasphemous in some ways, right? I mean, some people take it there. Do our prayers change God's eternal plan? Do our prayers change God in general? 
Well, no, God is perfect. If he changed from perfection, that's not a good sign. And if his plans change, that's even worse. No, God doesn't need us. In fact, God doesn't need to do this. You know this, right? This last seal should be silence, judgment, period. That's it. But what does God do? He says, I'm going to take these objects of my wrath, redeem them as my children, and I'm not just going to save them. I'm going to give them an indispensable part in my glorious plan to bring salvation and judgment. I'm going to use them and their prayers as the means by which I bring my glory into the world. So our prayers don't change God's plan. It's a gracious and sovereign part of His glorious plan to redeem all creation. Brothers and sisters, if that wasn't enough, think about what God has done for us in Christ. God has set His love on us before time began, chosen us in His Son to redeem us, sent His Son to live and die in our place, to go to the cross and bear the wrath of God for us, raised from the dead, conquering sin and death, seal us for all of eternity so that we will praise God and we will be left standing. And then God brings us in to His perfect plan and calls us to pray for peace and judgment and reconciliation and salvation. His Son teaches us to pray, Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. To pray, come Lord Jesus and fix this mess. And God says, I will answer that prayer. Do you see the incredible implications of this for what we are about to do in a prayer service like this? I mean, I don't know about you, but there are times when I feel like prayer can feel meaningless or useless. We can pray week after week for the same things and, and see nothing come of it. I've had people on my prayer list for decades, decades, and see no progress. Every time we pray for the government, there's a part of me that doubts that anything is going to change. It seems to be getting worse. And we can start to assume from those things, this is not a good use of my time. I would much rather be somewhere else on a Sunday afternoon doing something else that would be more fulfilling or get me some kind of result. Why would I show up to pray when it seems like nothing happens? Because this passage shows us our prayers, our prayers are powerful and essential in God's plan. There's nothing more important that we can do with our time. God even promises to topple kingdoms, bring judgment, resurrect dead souls to life, to join in this infinite chorus of praise and to pray for the end of, of the world and glory to come. God shows us here, he hears our prayers. Not one prayer prayed in faith is ignored or lost or unheard by God. It all goes up to his heavenly throne. And if we don't get an answer right now, we pray he's delighted to fulfill that at the end of the age and that's the last encouraging thing god actually delights in answering our prayers it's not just the people that are righteous or wise or have good ideas and god says oh that was a good idea i better do that 
It's not the way it works. God answers our prayers. He delights to answer our prayers because we are in Christ. And we are promised that Christ himself, Hebrews 7, intercedes for us. Even the Holy Spirit, Romans 8, intercedes for us when we don't know what to pray. You ever been there? Lord, I've prayed the same thing so many times. I don't know what's left to say. And the Holy Spirit says, I know exactly what you mean. And this passage shows us that even our worst prayers, prayed in weakness and distraction and doubt, are mixed with the incense of intercession from Christ and the Holy Spirit. And they become a pleasing aroma to our Lord that he delights to answer, to bring judgment and glory and salvation to his people. There's so much more we could say, but we need to pray. In fact, it should be said, we get to pray. So may these incredible truths help us to pray more, to trust the Lord until he returns or calls us home. Let's pray. Father, help us to look to your Son in faith, to look to Christ's finished work, to in this moment as we await his second coming in the wilderness, as we are struggling and striving to honor you, Lord, help us to trust in his finished work and trust that you will answer these prayers, that Christ even now is interceding for us and the Spirit is helping our prayers get to your heavenly throne room. Help us to have great joy and peace and then boldness, Lord, as we know you are faithful to answer your prayers in and through us. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.